Well, welcome back, everyone. I'm so happy to see so many of you out this evening. It's smoky, smoky time. I'd like to talk to you this evening about my, um, about being mindful of race. I'd like to have us explore that together. And, um, you know, it's a real important time for us to perhaps examine our conditioning around race and bring the beauty and wisdom of this practice right into the heart of our racial distress and misunderstanding. It's really what I've been writing about in the work I've been doing. And it's been uh, really fruitful. So I want to share a bit of that work with you, that the thinking on that, this kind of intersection of mindfulness and, and race and racism. Before I do that, I'd like to have you do a little exercise with me. And it requires that you turn to somebody nearby that you don't know. And just just look at them for a minute. Just somebody right near you that, not somebody you came with, because, you know, just turn around and get face-to-face with someone that you don't know. We're staying in silence for a minute. Okay. And there can be a trio, if you like. So looking at this person... You're you're kind of sibling, Sangha sibling here. Just take a breath and repeat after me. If I didn't belong to you, I wouldn't be here. If you didn't belong to me, you wouldn't have come. Your heart and my heart are very old friends. And you can offer a bow, hug, whatever you do here. It's all good. Okay, so hugs are happening. That's, that's good. Okay. So, um, I don't have to tell you how challenging our times are right now how there is a threat to um, democracy, broad spread, how there is um, so much harm and criminalization of dark and black bodies throughout the world and, you know, through immigration, through prison systems, this strong militarization response that we have in the world and so many children uh, being impacted and gun violence and mental health issues and um, so much distress, so much distress even with the veterans that are really um, have so many stories that haven't been told that are living out loud uh, and so, so we really uh, there's there's all 
I'm 70 years old, so this is not the craziest time I've seen, but it's pretty bad. You know, it's pretty crazy right now. And in many ways, I see these as belonging issues. Belonging issues. It's like who defines belonging? And how does that actually get set up? There's such a huge distortion around greed, aversion, and delusion going on in the world. It's just massive um, um, pain because of that. And yet there are things that I think we can train ourselves to see, especially as it relates to race. One of the questions I invite people to consider is why are matters of race still matters of concern? And what does that have to do with me? Why are matters of race still matters of concern? And what does that have to do with me? So, um, you know, people bring their lives to the cushion. And uh, when we come into, especially centers like this, you know, we have a teaching uh, in this tradition called the Two Truths Doctrine, which is really looking at ultimate and relative reality. What, a, what draws a lot of us to spiritual practice is ultimate reality, this sense of um, we're all kind of in this together, we're all uh, formless, Um, uh, the ultimate reality is not about the conceptual world or so so much stuff that's tied around ego. And then there's relative reality, which is our kind of relational, our kinship reality that we live in. So in relative reality, I'm I'm woman, I'm African-American, I'm, you know, great-grandmother, I'm... I'm a bunch of things people tell me I am that I don't agree with. (laughs) But in ultimate reality, I'm none of those things, right? You know, there is no such thing as race. It's, you know, it's, it's the formless there. So what I'm talking about tonight, um, is really relative reality, our relational reality. Um, T.S. Eliot, who was a literary critic, says that the eternal is outside of time, yet it is only in time that the fruits of spiritual practice can manifest. So we don't get to have an experience of ultimate reality outside of these bodies, outside of these sense doors. You know, we, we, we can't... Um, Ultimate and relative reality are really two expressions of one truth. But sometimes we seek the ultimate reality and we bypass the relative reality in our spiritual pursuits. And it's this bypass that I think creates the severing, that creates separation that we experience. So we forget that we belong um, because we, uh, um, we're, we're, we're conditioned to feel like we're separate. 
we're conditioned to feel like we're separate. That's part of being in relative reality, the world of concepts, the world of I have to uh, figure out what this perception is in order for me to know how to relate to it. And that's a big part of what we are learning to do from the time we're infants all the way up. We're being conditioned around what safety is, what this group is, what that group is, who's on top, who's on bottom. It's part of our conditioning. But our attraction when we come in spiritual community is to lean towards the ultimate reality. But if we're not aware of the relative reality, we suffer. John Wellwood, a Buddhist psychologist back in the 80s, wrote about this thing called spiritual bypass that I think is characteristic of the way the severed belonging happens. And he says it this way. He says, we often use the goal of spiritual awakening or liberation to rationalize what I call premature transcendence trying to rise above the raw and messy side of our humanness before we have fully faced it and made peace with it. And then we tend to use the absolute truth to dismiss relative human needs and psychological problems. He says, I see this as an occupational hazard, trying to move beyond our psychological and emotional issues by sidestepping them is dangerous. It leads to a conceptual, one-sided spirituality in which one pole is elevated at the expense of the opposite. Absolute truth favored over relative truth. Emptiness over form. Transcendence over embodiment. Detachment over feelings. So what I'm talking about and the work that I do it's, it's focused on the relative reality, not trying to jump over to this kumbaya place where it's all heaven and light <laughs> without feeling the raw material of our relatedness and kinship. It is the rubbing and the, 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 the challenges that we have as humans that, that, that makes belonging a real experience. One of the things I talk about is racism is a heart disease that's curable. And one of the ways I work with this is is I've found in my own life, um, having had open heart surgery, but that's another conversation, the heart has always been a metaphor for me in my life. Uh, But the cure for me that really uh, made all the difference was me being... Uh, was me stepping into a mindfulness practice. That's where my heart really got ripened. That's where I made sure that I wasn't leaving my heart at the door when I walked through the world. It was this cultivation of a wiser heart, a growing wise heart that supported me in facing racism, recognizing my impact, and that the heart was actually the medicine we needed to um, transcend the moment of conflict or dis-ease as felt in that moment. 
It didn't always um, contribute to the social problem going away, but it certainly strengthened my capacity to meet it with care. And I found that that matters. See, too many of us want um, racial suffering to go away without being touched by it or without understanding it or without touching it. And that's really not possible. So as I talk about this tonight, I'm using the relative reality of our kinship, which means I'm using language and concepts. And I'm, I'll be saying things like white folks and people of color, not to separate us, but to acknowledge the separation that exists and to be able to talk about it in a way that we can begin to see certain patterns of harm and interrupt them from the inside out. Interrupt our habitual conditioning. Begin to question it. Begin to reshape some of the things we've been taught or the ways we've been trained to not see certain things that contribute to a severed belonging. Ajahn Tejaniya, one of our uh, teachers, he says, people only become awake and alert when there is some sort of discomfort or distress. They stop paying attention once they are comfortable again. And there's a term in Buddhism called Samvega. And it's a Pali term that means according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's one of our treasured uh, Theravadan monks, he says that Samvega is an inner commotion or shock which does not allow us to rest with our habitual adjustment to the world. Instead, it drives us on out of our cozy palaces and into unfamiliar jungles to work out with diligence authentic solutions to our existential plight. So I think there's something powerful about discomfort, mainly because it gets our attention. And then what we do once it gets our attention is what matters most. So one of the ways I try to talk about this is, uh, and very simplistically, is through what I call the racial awareness rubric. The rubric has six sides, and there's three pairs of um, concepts I'd like to share this evening for us to um, just begin to play with. The first pair on the rubric has to do with we're all good individuals, and we're all part of racial identity groups. Some of us know that, and some of us don't. Some of us can relate to that, and some of us don't. So we're all good individuals in the sense that we're all individual beings in these bodies. We we were all raised to some extent to be able to be here and, um, you know, follow our mind. We've all had losses and successes and, you know, achievements and regrets. And we've all suffered as individuals. This is a part of our um, conditioning 
So as individuals, we're all individuals. We're all racial beings as well. And we're all part of racial identity groups. Some of us are part of many racial identity groups. So um, what I've found is that a lot of people, a lot of white people, for example, and I'm talking about patterns, can, I, can relate to being individuals, but not always can relate or feel connected to a racial affinity group. And that's part of what this pair of the rubric really speaks to. So there's an absence of awareness of the racial affinity group of whiteness. And people of color tend to be very strongly affiliated with um, racial affinity groups. Sometimes to the extent of not really plugging into the individual identity. So these two pairs on the Rubik, oftentimes uh, when we try to talk about race, go we, we kind of miss each other. When we come to the table to talk about race... Most of the time, white folks come as good individuals. People of color come as members representing generations of um, racial group identity. And um, we miss each other. One of the ways that lives, and sometimes there's comments like um, that I'll get from white people, for example, that would say, when I look at you, I don't see race. It's an example of this kind of kind of dynamic. I'm being seen as a as a good individual. I'm also being seen in ultimate reality as opposed to relative reality where there are concepts and patterns of harm. So we miss each other. There's different intensities that get played out, um, different stories, uh, and so we miss each other when we're not bringing our full lives and lineages to an understanding of that conversation. So that's one, one of the dynamics, one of many dynamics that happen with this pair. We're all good individuals. We're all part of racial identity groups. Some of us are intimately aware of that, while others are not. And, and when we try to have the conversation, we miss each other because we bring different things to our understanding. The second pair on the Rubik is an understanding that now we're looking at group identities, not individual identities, but racial group identities are not all created equal. The second pair on the Rubik is that some racial groups are dominant and other racial groups are subordinated. In our cultural realm right now, because it could change, White folks are, are the dominant racial group identity in terms of power dynamics. Dominant. People of color are subordinated racial group identities. That means something at a collective level, at a social level. We can see these patterns. And what's characteristic of dominance has to do with power dynamics. We're talking about the collective power dynamics in our in our society. All right? So um, there's social norms that we're all living with 
that we kind of know that that exists. We have um, uh, in dominant uh, um, people that are in dominant racial groups. Uh, when you look around, what you can see as social norms is social norms around beauty, social norms around who has power and the amount of resources and the presu- presumed assumption um, around superiority. You can see that with that the dominance of that is white in our culture as a collective. People of color groups are tend to be subordinated. We can see this gestalt in our in our um, social realm. So this is an important thing to start to look at. It's hard to see these patterns uh, that are pervasive in our society if we're looking solely from the eyes of individuals. So in order to see the patterns, you have to see collective. And if you're not conditioned to see collective, then a lot is missed in the exchange of us coming together in our belonging. For example, subordinated racial groups know a lot about dominant groups because their lives depend on navigating that territory. Right? So it's these subtle things that we can begin to pick up on. Within the dominant and subordinated racial group identity, this, this pair on the Rubik. There, there are six hindrances to racial harmony that I talk about. I can't talk about all of them tonight. But I'll talk about a couple of them. These are things, behaviors we can see. One that I talk about is called the stars and the constellations. These are racial group identity dynamics that we can see. The stars and the constellations. White folks tend to see the stars as a collective. People of color tend to see the constellation, the patterns that are happening. For an example, when Michael Brown, the 18-year-old African-American man out of Ferguson, Missouri was killed. There was a group of us that came together in Charlotte, North Carolina to talk about that incident. And they showed a clip and we were all sitting in small circles and talking about what we saw and the impact that it had and what we could do. And we went around and there was um, mostly white people at this community event. And um, a white guy in the group said... uh, When it was his turn, he said, I can't believe that man killed that boy like that and he was left in the street. And I can't believe how the news has dealt with it. And, you know, this has just been a horrible thing. He was trembling. He was crying. He was shaking. He was very distraught over what had happened. He saw the stars. When I talked about the incident, my report was... I can't believe that once again an African-American young man unarmed has been killed by a, you know, a white police officer. There was color all in the discussion in my share and it represented a pattern. It wasn't like it was just Michael Brown. It was 
There was just a whole list of names that, are, that I'm still adding to on that issue. That's a constellation. That's the Big Dipper. That's Chiron. You know, that has a shape. That's a tattoo. That's a, that's a recurring, repetitive motion, um, chronic fatigue kind of dynamic that happens. So this is a way that we see things differently. If, if we were seeing the same thing, but we were seeing it differently. And I think this is also tied to the individual versus group identity piece that happens. That if whiteness, for example, if, if white people are focused, not focused intentionally, because I'm really talking about conditioning. It's like, it's like not anybody's fault. But when the focus is on individual as opposed to collective, then whiteness doesn't get vetted, it doesn't get examined. And the only examining that's happening is when people of color are doing it, which creates a certain imbalance in society. So it's a real um, um, vacancy in the exchange because it's very difficult to see collective when collective is actually happening. And characteristic of any group in dominance is going to be, whether it's you know male or whether it's Christian or you know whatever the dominant group is, characteristic of being dominant is actually seen from an individual lens, not a collective lens. So this is a real important piece that stars in the constellations. When we can see the the, the constellation, then we we get to see that um, you know uh, the woman that was taking the nap at uh, where was she at Yale University and the black one the, the woman of color and another resident calls the police because she doesn't look like she belongs or the Starbucks incident and you know you get to see these patterns and and you see that there's something else that needs to be questioned and examined other than the solo incident of it, the news clip of it that's running across the screen. And not only when when we start watching the constellations, we are also able to see the systems in our social realm that actually capitalize from this kind of social norm of, of, of who's criminal and who's not. So you can see, you know, uh, you can look in, in uh, Aboriginal communities and Native people and uh, immigrants, and we can look in Tibet, we can look in Australia, we can look in Bosnia, we can look in Canada, just to name a few. We see this same constellation of harm towards um, certain people. And then there's what Naomi Klein talks about as, uh, you know, uh, what is it, the term capitalist, uh, uh, disaster capitalist, the, the systems that then move in to actually shape themselves and profit from the harm, whether it's increased gun sales or whether it's um, more prison systems or whether it's the militarization of the police force. And we get to see the systems that actually, the prison systems that organize themselves around the assumption of um, of 
you know, there's profit there. The prison, parts of the prison system are on the stock market. So these are things that we can begin to look at and notice and see ourselves in it and, and um, recognize the, the, the ways we're relating to it. I think we're challenged with um, thinking about things as together when they appear to be separate. There's also a hindrance of um, uh, what, what I'm calling a cumulative impact. And this is a dynamic that you see in exchanges with people of color and white folks. And what happens is um, white people will come to the discussion oftentimes as well-intended good individuals. And I'm not knocking this. I'm just saying that that's kind of, you know... How it, how it rose, people of color come with this accumulation of uh, being challenged by these kind of microaggressions that go on day in and day out and generationally and on and on and on. So what happens sometimes is that in the interaction there could be an explosion by the person of color because of this accumulated, it's like a teapot that, that, that steams, that just keeps heaping with heat because there's just a lot of times they're confronting the issues around race and pointing them out. So, so now we're in a place where there's a new emergence of wanting to talk about race now. And yet people come with different energies. People of color have been like, doing this for for a long time. A lot of white people are just entering the conversation and we miss each other. It's all good intention, but we miss each other. And if white people relate to the explosion and take that personally, then 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 the system or the opportunity collapses. Right? If it's taken personally, as opposed to seeing it as this kind of and accumulation that's been built up. And people of color are challenged with navigating that intensity so that it's not erupting in places and causing harm. But you see we're on different, different the nerve endings are different for us, even though we're coming to, to take a look at this issue. I always say it's messy at best. So this accumulative impact is another way that um, we need a lot of heart to navigate the, the coming together, a lot of understanding that, that those eruptions are not personal. It's about fatigue. It's about exhaustion. It's about, um, at times, despair. And then there's this dynamic of white privilege and I'm just going to say a little bit about this because most white people I know don't relate to the term white privilege because it's not their individual experience. But the only way to understand white privilege is to look at collective. And because that's not something that gets examined, then collective doesn't enter into the equation. So it's hard to see 
what the privilege is because it's a collective dynamic, not so much an individual. It doesn't mean certain individuals don't have privilege. But white privilege means means collective. It means it, it, it's more about the dominant culture and the invisible ways that it, um, it, 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 it rolls. One of the dynamics of um, white privilege um, is, is that there's a certain um, collusion or um, collusion around it, what I call blindness, sameness, and silence. And uh, this is not things we do consciously. These are things, this is part of the conditioning again. So we're looking at conditioning. So I ran across this thing on Facebook back in 2005. And because it was on Facebook, it must be true. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and quote it. But it says, it says, incoming Congress. 80% white male, 92% Christian, 100% unaware that this is a problem. And this is how this kind of blindness, sameness, and silence, this unquestioning of this kind of um, dynamic just just continues. And you know you're in the realm of privilege when you're thinking about taking a risk in a group of maybe all white people. If you're white and you're taking a group in all white people, with all white people, and you start to question whether... That's a good idea. That's when you know you're a part of an unacknowledged white group that's in motion. That's one of the little indicators. And it's so important to look at this uh, dynamic of white privilege because um, another way it plays out is... uh, I get a lot of white people that I coach that, that, are, that are really trying to look at how do I be a good ally? I want to be a good ally to, be, to people of color. Um, but sometimes uh, being a good ally can be a way of moving away from understanding whiteness. I don't want anybody to not be a good ally. But there's something about understanding whiteness with other white people that, that, that really needs a lot of attention. So I talked to one of our teachers here who, uh, who was from the South. And I moved to the South from, the, from Berkeley about 11 years ago. I can't believe it's been 11 years. So I'm in the South now. And the South is, a real, is really different from the Bay Area. Um, learning about and so I was talking to a teacher who was from from the south and we were talking about race and he's a white guy and he, and he says ah so happy to get out of the south I couldn't wait to get out of the south there was so much racism up there and and I said so so you left right and he says yeah I left I couldn't wait to get out of there and and uh, I said, so you've been in this practice a while? And he says, oh, yeah. And I said, well, what would it be like for you to go back now and talk to your folks about what you're learning about race and this practice? or anything? Oh, no, I could never do that. I said, well, how come you couldn't do that? He said, oh, no, I could never do that. I said, well, why can you do that? He said they would never listen. And um, so we looked at each other 
for a few moments and and he acknowledged that he was just terrified to even think about doing something like that. And I said to him, I said, you know, if you're not doing that work of talking to your folks about race, guess who's picking up the slack? And he kind of he kind of got that, you know. So, you know, but he was happy to help me with my race work. But I'm trying to help his folks with their <laughs> with their race. But he's trying to help me. So this can be this kind of funny way that being an ally plays itself out. I'm going to help you, but I'm not going to talk to them. I'm uncomfortable talking to them. But who do you think I'm talking to? Right? So we, we all have, you know, work to do. And I think that um, racial literacy can't be really flushed out until we we're in this conversation in a in a real deep way. So there's individual and racial group identity. We're both we're part of both. Some of us are can feel individual more than racial group identity, and vice versa. All racial groups are not created equal. There's dominant and subordinated racial group dynamics that we can begin to see and pay attention to and recognize our relationship to. And um, what I'll say, uh, the last thing I'll say about the dominance and subordinated dynamic is that there is um, the institutional cultures that are influenced through the awareness of our racial group identity. So racism and all isms live in systems. They don't live in just so much at the individual level. The ism is a system, policies, practices, norms, um, you know, laws. Um, So inside cultures is where we see racism. And what it is mainly is a roll-up of racial group identity of whoever is in charge. So if white people are predominantly running institutions and their racial group identity of whiteness hasn't been vetted or examined or or investigated, then that consciousness is rolled into the culture of the institution and then it lives and breathes and and, um, procreates itself. So that's how... Uh, you know, it's not to, it's not a matter of whether institutions have racism or not. It's about how are we bringing awareness to the uh, understanding of that so it can be shifted. That's not a criticism. That's just, you know, we bring our minds and hearts and our conditioning wherever we go. And so the last pair on the rubric has to do with mindfulness and racial affinity groups. And what I want to say about mindfulness, um, these are this last pair are two structures that can support us in um, deconstructing our mental conditioning around race so that we can put some air in it and spaces in it and light in it and warmth in it and begin to reassemble or shift some of the ways we've been conditioned to respond. 
So another quote by um, Theodore Utejani, uh, he, he says, one thing you need to remember is that you cannot leave the mind alone. It needs to be watched constantly. If you do not look after your mind, it will overgrow with weeds. If you do not watch the mind, harm will grow and multiply. The mind does not belong to you, but you are responsible for it. So unawareness has impact, and habits have strength. Whether we know it or not, this is all kind of rolling along, this sense of selfing. And mindfulness practice, this practice that you get when you come here on Monday nights, that we teach up the hill here and in other centers, mindfulness practice becomes an ethical inquiry into our um, sense of responsibility. It, it supports us in, in, in examining our mind in ways that keep us in alignment with our ethics. And I think racial inquiry needs to be dropped right in the heart of our mindfulness practice. Nelson Mandela says that when we can sit in the face of insanity and dislike and be free from the need to make it different, then we are free. So part of what mindfulness is doing with this kind of racial tension or um, this itch or scratch, this not knowing, this not believing, this not feeling into it or this rage about it, um, the challenge for us is to see if we can um, navigate our nervous system and bring our sense self to a sense of stillness enough to be able to tenderly examine our conditioning in this. And one of the biggest things that we can begin to look at has to do with perception, how we've been conditioned to see and perceive. So I have a couple of stories. I was... Um, I've done a lot of training of Mindful of Race in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, uh, prior to the, uh, um, you know, the eruption that happened there with the alt-rights. And, and then after really supporting them and preparing the community. And anyway, it was a beautiful thing. And a woman was taking me to the airport um, on one of my earlier visits there, and we stopped at this street this intersection, we're in the car, and I looked up and it said, the street name said Barack Avenue. And um, so let me just back up a little bit. One of the things we want to look at in perception is what I call this tripod of perceiving, and, and with perceptions comes thoughts and emotions that we have about what we're perceiving. And then when that gets reinforced, we have this view. So this is a cycle we can begin to bring our attention to. We perceive, we have thoughts and feelings about it, and then if reinforced, that becomes a view or a belief. So we're at this intersection. I look up and it says Barack Avenue. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm sit- sitting there thinking to myself, what a progressive city. Oh, look at this. All of a sudden I got hot and, you know, my breath got all up in my chest and I 
was talking in Swahili. I had my head all wrapped in my mind and calling my partner and saying, we got to move here. This is a progressive city. And, you know, all of this is going on in my mind. And I finally opened my mouth and say to the woman that's driving, I said, wow, you know, what a progressive city here. You have a street called Barack Avenue. And she, she clears her throat and she says, <clears throat> in these parts, we call that Barracks Avenue. You know, and then we giggled all the way to the airport. But I was so convinced that it was Barack, and I was off and running with the story about it. Would have, if I hadn't opened my mouth, it would have just been this, I would have continued with that story, right? And this is how it works, you know? And so we have these, um, these beliefs, you know. I was on a plane, and I, I fly a lot, and I wear these wristbands. They say, mindful of race, not there yet. And I usually wear two or three of them, and you know, sometimes I'll be in a conversation with somebody and they'll say something and instead of me, you know, trying to talk about it, I'll just hand them a wristband. It's like, here, here, you know, something like that. <laughs> so I'm getting on the plane and the stewardess says, um, oh, what does is, what is your wristband say? And I say, mindful of race. And before I can say anything else, she says, oh, yeah, I ran a 10K for cancer once. <laughs> You know, you're looking really good. And I'm thinking, wow, you know. So she put the mindful of race together with my ball head and assumed I had just come out of, you know, treatment for cancer. And so I just said, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. But it happened so quickly. It happened so quickly. I remember my mother telling me this joke when I was really young of the two black guys driving down a hill, a one-way road, and, and then the two white police officers are driving up the hill in their police car, and when the black guys drive past the white guys, they holler out, pigs, pigs! And of course, the, the white guys are pissed off but they can't turn around and arrest them because it's a one way road and they get up a few more feet and they have to slam on their brakes because there's a herd of pigs crossing the road (laughs) but we think we know you know we know nothing but we think we know this this power of perception is uh, uh, we're often running we're often running I heard uh, one of my teachers Say, share this story. A couple of women moved in the, across the hall from me. One is a middle-aged gym teacher and the other is a social worker in her mid-twenties. These two women go everywhere together and I've never seen a man go inside or outside the apartment. Do you think they're Lebanese? <laughs> we think we got it. You know, we think, you know, we're off and running. You know, but the same mechanism of perceiving, having thoughts and feelings about it, shaping a view, is also what contributes to people pulling a trigger when they see a 13 or a 17 or a Trayvon Martin, you know, or this recent incident that happened at a Brooklyn deli recently by this 53-year-old white woman who called 911 accusing a nine-year-old black kid of rubbing her behind when she she was going into the store. 
and she was, you know, making this big scene, and the 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 you could hear it on the tape. The young boy was just hysterical. What did I do? What happened? What happened? Right. Well, they played back the videotape, and it was his backpack that brushed against her behind. But she thought, you know, she called and called the police. And so she apologized. I understand she apologized um, to the camera, to, uh, to, the, uh, to the kid, but insisted on being outraged of the mother who she felt was abusive towards her. So this is the same mechanism of perception, thoughts and emotions, deeply rooted. We have these deep grooves that just haven't been examined. And then we form a view. Then we're calling the police. You know, the police comes armed. I mean, all kind of things can happen. But this is that same mechanism that we can slow down in mindfulness practice and attend to and examine some of the things we can begin to ask ourselves in reflection is um, how am I relating to what's happening right now? Um, what racial views or beliefs are fueling this distress that I'm experiencing? What impact is my experiencing my experience having on my heart and my mind? What assumptions am I making? Do they support distress or freedom? Am I holding to an identity or view of dominance or subordination? We get to investigate these things in our sitting practice, in our safety. There's a lot of vulnerability involved in this kind of inquiry. So it requires a safe place, and mindfulness is one place where we can do that, especially at the individual level. And at the group level, what I encourage is that we have racial, we are members in racial affinity groups, that we get together with other peoples of, people of our same race and begin to ask some questions about our conditioning. We show up in a racial affinity group to acknowledge that we don't understand. We're not there yet. We don't know everything there is to know. We're seeking to understand more deeply. People of color in a racial affinity group can meet and examine what's left out when you focus too tightly on being subordinated. We get to look at our internalized depression and question or aerate whether that's actually happening or whether it's a layer on top of something else. And we get to investigate this thing that I call uh, a racial pyramid of subordinated suffering, where when we get together as a body of color, it, it's uh, depending on who, which race is speaking, there, there gets, a hierarchy gets created in it. A mimicking of dominant, dominant culture gets played out that we can begin to take a look at and interrupt. And when white people get together in a racial affinity group, they can begin to look at this kind of underneath this sense of numbness or agitation or why are we doing this and, and, and why do we even need to bother with this thing, this thing that's uncomfortable. And we get to, you know, you get to look at um, 
um, how it feels to be vulnerable and not know and not um, have it all together. This, this kind of myth of that gets to be examined. So why are we doing all of this? We're doing all of this because our culture needs a bit more care. We, we're moving towards a culture of care. Um, what we see in the world right now with all of its craziness is a result of um, past seeds that have been planted. Seeds of consciousness. That's what's blooming right now what's been planted in the past. So there's stuff we can't do anything about and then there's stuff we can do something about with what, what's blooming right in front of us now. The actions we take in response to what's happening in the world right now will plant seeds that will bloom at some point. So our consciousness around race has to do with planting more seeds that are uh, that bring more consciousness around our understanding of our contribution to this larger social system our part in it so this is not about fault or blame this is more about um, the power we have to wake up to some of these kind of um, blindly assumed norms around our conditioning and bring some different awareness to it through our own goodwill. And we need a lot of compassion to do that. You know, we need a lot of stick toing, sticking to it. In the book, there's a section on racial affinity groups, how to form them and how um, um, that, that there's a deal that's made in forming them. It's just not some, hey, let's get together or let me ask you these questions. There's a commitment to meet for a certain period of time. There's specific questions that you engage to keep your inquiry internal so that you're not looking at how you fix the stuff out there before you understand the stuff in, the, in here. So the whole instruction on how to set that up skillfully and and heartfully. So Eckhart Tolle says that, um, spiritual author says, ultimately you're not a person but a focal point where the universe is becoming conscious of itself. So sometimes we don't think our part makes that di- makes all that difference, but it makes a huge a huge difference. So we have what's the first two pairs? Individual and group racial group identity. Second two, dominant and subordinated. Racial group identities, and within there, there's six hindrances to racial harmony. And then the third pair on the rubric mindfulness and racial affinity groups. I'm going to get out my red pen and put a 
<laughs> so maybe um, I'll stop here and uh, we have a couple of minutes for any questions you might have if this has stimulated your heart in any way. Any questions? This question here. Here's the mic. Here's the mic. Affinity group when you don't want to take a risk in it, and I was wondering if that related to the story you told of uh, the white guy you were talking to that said he didn't want to go back and talk about race with his people. Yeah. It does. It relates to that. I was referring more, and not so much to the affinity group, but um, that's how you understand that whiteness is actually happening when you don't want to confront it, because the it is actually a a thing that is there, but because it's not named, it can be more easily avoided. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. And you were talking about that we need to get into our own affinity groups and talk about it. Mm-hmm. You think that's more powerful than being in a diverse group and talking about it? Because mm-hmm. some I do, and let me tell you why. I think that um, because we bring different... Um, levels of understanding to the discussion, one of the things that commonly happens when we're in mixed group trying to work with race, and I'm not saying we're not, we shouldn't do that, but I'm saying there's some stuff that we can be doing over here that fortifies that, is that um, people of color end up having to educate white people on whiteness and those dynamics. And it tilts the, and it's something that white people can, can do for themselves. So um, it becomes a burden for people of color uh, to be in that constant mode of helping white people understand whiteness. Um, And I think there's a lot of uh, cumulative impact as a result of that. And um, and it's, and, and it's, it's just heavy lifting for people of color. I think it benefits white people, but I also think it's something that white people can do for themselves. And I think that when then when cross coming together to talk about race together happens, then there's a deeper understanding of what we are all bringing to the table as opposed to this piece of unconsciousness that many white people have about whiteness that ends up having to be pointed out. So I think it's just an extra... Uh, it's it's work that a lot of people of color don't want to be doing but are forced to do because white people are not doing that right now. So it's a way of bringing some balance. Thank you. It's a question back there and then one over here. Thank Thank you, Sister. Uh, uh, The... Earlier you were talking about the disconnect, I think, between ideology, a liberal ideology, a humanistic ideology, and the raw feeling 
or experience based on uh, feeling based on experience. Uh, nobody wants to be a racist. And if you ask most people, they say, of course, no, I'm not racist. And it's, it's not a good thing. The ideology says to us, it's not a good thing to be a racist. But embracing that is probably half the job. And you had mentioned the part about mindfulness that really stayed with me. The root of mindfulness, I think, is you must have the dialogue with yourself. You must actually sit down and empower yourself with a dialogue that understands the principles of racism, understanding that first you have to say to yourself, yes, I am a racist. I have said those things. I don't want the world to know that, so I say other things. And why Very don't personal. You, why don't you want the world to know that? Because it would make me wrong. Because the ideology says, oh my goodness, you, know, you ought not to be a racist. Most people in the world are probably racist, but they don't... I mean, it's part of it. It's, it's grim, I know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do believe it's the very dialogue. Uh, Martin Luther King had it right. He did not think we could eradicate uh, racism. But he did say, we must do the job of overcoming it. Yeah. And that is not easy. Because then exactly. you must sit with yourself. Right. Yeah. I think, too, that I seldom use the word racist because that speaks to individuals. I tend to focus on the word racism because that's looking at the systems that are, are um, the result of certain behaviors and patterns that get shaped from collective activity or unconsciousness. So um, I think it's great to sit on the cushion and ask the questions. Um, and that's such an important thing to do. But I think knowing which questions to ask gets generated from the racial affinity groups as you are rubbing against each other and, and kind of investigating together the areas that you don't know. Otherwise, I think it's hard. I mean, I think we can, we can our mind can, can really be very sophisticated and... Um, Avoid, <laughs> avoiding these issues or not knowing which questions to ask. But if you have the combination of racial affinity group, which is stimulating the mind and activity because there's the polishing of a certain stone that's, that's, that's our conditioning, and what comes up as a result of that, this kind of thing that you don't know or may not realize, then that becomes a material that can be investigated in our mindfulness practice. Um, it also builds um, um, a sense of um, the gifts that come out of being vulnerable and uh, not knowing is, is being ripened. Uh, intimacy is being ripened. Uh, I hear a lot of white people talk to me about feeling um, a sense of not feeling connected uh, around this discussion and, and um, not feeling like there's places to plug in, a certain numbness, a certain uh, fright. Uh, I think all of that can be um, examined and cared for in a racial affinity group uh, by the members that are there that have committed to come together and engage in safety and um, respect. So, you know, I, th I just think though that combination is really helpful.
I think white people have to come out of hiding around their vulnerability around this issue so that it can be well supported and loved. I think that's a piece of the the work that's still to be done by white people with white people. So, thank you for your question. There was a hand here. Uh, You've actually just uh, spoken fairly directly to my question, which was, uh, as a white guy dealing with uh, uh, other groups, with with groups of color, people of color, individuals of color, Mm. um, how do we... Do you have any suggestions for connecting on a more personal level, hearing their personal stories or empowering their personal stories uh, since they're coming from this uh, constellation, you called it, I believe? Is there an advantage of that? Do you have any suggestions? of? I think you just said some of it. (laughs) So you're saying how you as a white man do what? I deal with people of color. What can I do to, is there anything I can do uh, to hear their stories more effectively? Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. And I think you just sort of answered it. Yeah, I think a big part is, um, uh, here's an example of, of a woman I coached who worked in the prison system, practitioner. And one of the things she said to me, this is a bit more dramatic than what you're asking, but I think it makes the point. She says, when I go in the prison system, this is a white woman, and I hear the stories of these people of color, I become more alive because their stories give me so much. I feel so much of my life. And I, I, I think that's great. And I asked her, I said, so what, if, what are some of the stories with other white people that bring you to life? Or what are the stories of pain and suffering that's there that can bring you to life? So my suggestion is, I think one of the most um, important things white people can do to support people of color is to know about whiteness and to know about the impact of whiteness and um, to allow that uh, awareness of whiteness to be what allows the radiance in your presence with people of color. Because that's going to be felt if you never open your mouth. You know? So there's this not a thing to do because yet we have to watch the things we're doing to help people of color because there can be a, a continuation of dominance in that stance. Um, the genuineness of the heart intention is something I want to keep flowering so I don't want what you're saying to be dampered but I think the the biggest um, healing comes when we can all be talking about our histories and that you know there's there's that that's being a part of so it's not helping them as much as it is bringing your own stories to the table and sharing there being available to hear their stories, really genuinely hear it. Yeah, there's there's hearing their stories, but there's also hearing your stories of whiteness from other white people. Okay. And then that that what that does is that really supports a sense of um, understanding collective more, 
and then collective is talking to collective as opposed to individual talking to collective. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. It's an important question. It's one right here in the middle. I can't. You had your hand up, didn't you? Yeah, but other people might need to hear you. Mm-hmm. And then we'll come over here. Thank you for your patience. Um, this is really brave and wonderful work. I just wanted to thank you. Mm. And um, there was something that you said in a different Dharma talk that I wanted to also thank you for, which was that a certain amount of um, uh, ability to work with discomfort is a prerequisite for work with race, which yes. I think is yes. really true. Um, and I also wanted to ask you about your theory of change just on the level of our of our culture as a country. Um, and I can kind of imagine what an answer might be, but um, I'm wondering what else is needed from your perspective in addition to our working with our own hearts uh, on the stains of racism in our own hearts and how we might heal ourselves and then relate to each other. But then I think about what might happen in um, police precincts, you know, <laughs> where, where things are maybe a lot worse than they are at Spirit Rock, you know. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, um, there's, a, there's two chapters in the book, what, what white folks can do with privilege and what people of color must do um, to, to, to heal internalized racism. Um, I don't, you know, I think that when we're working this piece from the inside out, we're going to all have some way that we're contributing and seeing different places in the kaleidoscope of, of what's needed out there. So I don't have a specific thing. But I think, um, I think we all need to be talking to the children about race so that they can get more comfortable with the competency of knowing themselves, knowing the stories, um, being comfortable with it. A lot of younger people are more comfortable with race than people of my generation, but it doesn't mean they're rooted in history. It just means they, they've got some buddies and they're starting from you know this generation and moving forward. But I would encourage that, that we help our children know what, where we come from and, um, and that we support them in um, more um, um, deepen their relationships so that they're in the world. They can feel more connected and more safe and understand uh, why things are the way they are. Uh, and that requires us to get uh, more honest as, uh, as the um, older ones. But that's a real big piece. I mean, clearly there's a lot that needs to be done and we need to show up in this culture. Um, but how that, which, which place we plug in, is, uh, uh, I think it's going to be different for all of us. And I hope it's something that we all take seriously. And the other thing that I think is important is that if we weren't struggling with racism, we might all be more inclined to be artists and uh, dancers and musicians and singers. And, you know, uh, we might see this kind of unique expression that's uninhibited and wholesome, that's in service, that's medicine to to community. Uh, We might see more creativity and joy if we're not in the strain of separation. And uh, there's a part of me that would love to see that kind of freedom uh, among us as, as humans.
So one more back here. Not, not here, but in the second row. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your patience. I wonder what, I think I've got three questions. One, what might a story of whiteness look like in the group? And, you know, in a discussion that you're suggesting, just mm -hmm. curious what you might, what that might look like. And, uh, and uh, two, um, how can one automatically break through that um, perceived superiority? Yeah. And three, you've listed a few things, get together as a group, work with the children. Mm -hmm. I still want to say, what else can we do? Yeah. Well, um, these are all good and um, not easy to answer. And I know we're, we're over a little bit in time. Um, I don't have an idea about what, what the whiteness would look like in a racial affinity group because I think it's different for each people. It's really a conversation. It's not a destination. Um, it's not um, some place we're trying to get as much as we're really just kind of feeling into what this is. And uh, I see it as a life practice, you know, quite honestly. Um, I think that is the place or one place where, where the investigation of superiority can be examined. You need a sacred place. You need a special place for that. Um, and there is the, the, uh, the instructions is well kind of outlined in the book. And there's also a link on the website. But there's a commitment for one year. You meet once a month. There's some guidelines around how you exchange. Um, you only pick a few people, people that want to do this and want to explore, um, and so on and so forth. Um, so these are just places we can just highlight for now. But um, I do know that a lot of people are, are really bringing their heart to this uh, genuinely to look at. I mean, all races, a lot of many races are really starting to really examine their conditioning around race and look at what they can do. Uh, I can't tell you what to do, but there are some guidelines on how you can figure that out <coughs> and really be supported in it. So, oh, Well, thank you. I, I think maybe if we could just sit for about 30 seconds, that might be good together. And just taking a breath here. An appreciation for all of you that came and stayed as long as you could. May we remember that we belong to each other. May we grow in our awareness and service of a culture of care. May we be quick to recognize ourselves in each other, faults and all, faults and beauty. 
and may our practice be in service of of care in the world near and far. Thank you so much for hanging out. May this serve. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.